Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and in this series, we'll be traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Allison Miller and Dr. Alvin Schmid. Allison is an Associate Professor of Art History and the Chair of Asian Studies at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, and has published widely on Meiji Japan. She's a recipient of several distinguished fellowships, including being a Fulbright Fellow and an Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow. Alvin finished his PhD in 2022, another new PhD like me, very exciting and examine the constitutional framework of the Korean kingdom and its institutional links to the Chinese empire. Today, we are going to have a conversation about Meiji Japan and Korea's queen dowagers. So the first question I think to get everyone interested and into your research is kind of who are you and what do you research? Why don't we start with Allison? Hi, everyone. My name is Allison Miller, um, and I research mostly images of women in 19th and 20th century Japan. Um, and I'm, in addition to being a professor right now, I'm a Robert and Lisa Sainsbury Fellow in um, Norwich here in England. And um, in that context, I'm working on a project related to industry and infrastructure in woodblock prints. So mostly two-dimensional media, um, mostly things from the late 19th and early 20th century in Japan. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's always really neat. I think a lot of our historians so far have been very text-based. It's nice to get some art thrown in there as well, get that full range of queenship. And how about you? Um, yeah, thank you very much for, the, for this kind introduction, Joanna. So my name is Alban Schmidt. I'm a political historian. I originally started out uh, at Sciences Po in France as a political scientist, and then I reoriented myself towards political history of of East Asia. And like you said, my initial interest was with political institutions. So I was curious to find um, an understanding of the tributary empire, which is a hierarchical structure of international relations focused on the empire of China. And I was interested to see how the Korean kingdom fit into that. And it's through that that I became interested in constitutional structures within Korea and it's quite by accident, really, that I realized that the Queen Dowagers actually occupied a very central part in this framework. And our listeners will remember we had a conversation in the introduction about some of the Stuart Queen consorts. So looking at 
kind of women who are in positions of power have this title, but aren't necessarily queen at that exact moment. And so it'll be interesting to see this, this connection between queenship in the, the periphery of power, or maybe in the middle of power, we will find out in this episode. So what got you both interested in queenship? I know you both touched a little bit on it, um, but why queenship and why queenship in this part of the world, Alison? I've long been interested in two-dimensional media, specifically woodblock prints in Japan. And um, throughout the course of graduate school, and as I was deciding what I was going to work on for my dissertation, I was really interested in images of the emperor, Emperor Meiji, um, who ruled from 1868 to 1912. And there's been a fair amount of scholarship in English and in Japanese on him and on his image and how his image was fairly transformational. But what I started to notice is that in addition to him, in the prince, there's also her. And there is Shoken, which is um, the empress at the time. Um, so I, I became really interested in this question. And I, I mean, I do, full disclosure, consider myself a feminist scholar. Um, and I do come from a university that focuses on um, women and feminism in art history. So that's a part of the program that I came out of. And one of the reasons why I went to Kansas, where I studied. Um, so. I started to notice that there's a lot of images of women and that the women are fairly central in these images. Um, and sometimes they're on their own too. So um, kind of came to the topic through that and started working a little bit on these images of women and then started to look at um, Teime, who is the subject of my dissertation. And her period was the Taisho period, which is 1912 to 1926. So kind of came to it through both of these two women thinking about what their image means in the public sphere, and also um, broadly, what does it mean in visual culture? So when I say art history, I really mean um, visual culture, as in the culture of photography, prints, things that are more vernacular media, as opposed to just fine art. Um, most of the women that were, the two women that we're talking about, in addition to a lot of the um, other women surrounding them in the imperial household were not really known through portrait paintings so much as they were known through photography and, and mass media. Yeah, which is, I think, so interesting because so often I think we we picture, especially in Western Europe, monarchy in this very portrait sense that it's painted by one of these great artists. And I think actually, as we move into the age of photography, it's less this portrait that is fenced off in a sense. And it's more of this everyday accessible use of images. Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of that is because the, the this concept of, of public monarchy really was an innovation of the late 19th century in Japan. So there wasn't this long history of you know bronze sculptures or public imagery, um, coins, for example. Um, they didn't, that wasn't part of just the, the way that things were. So um, it really becomes a new thing. And at the same time, as technology like photography is um, coming into to global usage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always so interesting. And I think I'm going to put two questions together. So don't worry, I've not forgotten our other guest speaker. Uh, what are you currently working on, kind of building out of this previous research? Yeah, thank you for that question. So um, I'm actually right now finishing up a, a book called Envisioning the Empress, the Lives and Images of Japanese Royal Women, 1868 to 1952, which focuses on um, Shoken and Teimei, who were the Meiji and Taisho empresses, and looks at their images. So um, that book project was built out of my dissertation, but um, really expands upon it and is actually quite different <laughs> as everyone who's done or anyone who's done a book to dissertation, dissertation of a book project knows. Um, so that book hopefully will be out next year and really does focus on that. Um, but in thinking about other things, I'm also just still constantly working on images of women, not just royal women, but also um, I've done some work on factory women in the 1870s and thinking about women in urban um, cityscapes as well in the same 19th century period right now. Yeah. Fantastic. It's always exciting to see how people shift that work from the thesis, from the dissertation, and shift that into this this growing piece of work, and how that kind of 
keeps going. We think once we're finished the PhD that it's done, but no, oh, no. surprise, it's still there. <laughs> it's still lurking. <laughs> yeah, of course. and it, it does really lead to a lot of other ideas and other um, projects that I think just kind of spin off organically. So um, yeah, you're never finished with that initial seed. Absolutely. No, you might be finished with it, but it's never done with you. <laughs> it's not done with you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Alvin, what about you? What got you into kind of queenship and queenship in Asia? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. And I think I might start from the second part of the question, which is the interest in Asia, which is something that for me already started prior to, to starting university. I spent a year as a volunteer in China. And from there on, I sort of continued to develop this, this interest in, in an incredibly diverse and culturally rich area. So I spent time, just about two years in total in China, a few months in Taiwan, probably about a year in Japan. And ultimately it's Korea that I decided to focus on academically because here in the West, it's really underexplored and there are just incredible stories that you can tell through Korean history. So um, even though it's the country that I've traveled to least, um, probably linguistically, I'm also least least comfortable with Korean, but I had the benefit, and I have to confess here, that I am more of the textual historian type. Um, I had the benefit that my primary sources were written in classical Chinese. So I had this access. Now, for the question oh. of queenship, I think it's, it's one of these contingencies of history, um, of contingencies of, of research, really. So quite classically, as, as a political historian, I was originally looking at a king. I was particularly interested at a man named King Guanghe, or Guanghegung, who was reigning in an interesting time in Korea. There's a lot of transformation that we see in the early 17th century. We see a new empire forming in China, invasion, an invasion of Japan, Japan of Korea just prior to that period, so it's, it's very dynamic. I was looking at, at this man's foreign policy and reading through the Korean annals, this incredible textual source, I came across a very interesting sentence just at the very end of King Kwang He's reign. He's one of the few kings um, that didn't reign until his death. He was dethroned. Um, and about the next king, it says in the Korean annals, that His Majesty rose a righteous army. A righteous army is, is a way of saying rebels, but legitimate ones. Um, so His Majesty rose a righteous army and he re-established the Queen Dowager to her position, restored her titles. And then by orders of the Queen Dowager, he claimed the throne in the Gyeongbok palace and dethroned Gwanghae. And actually, when I first read the sentence, I couldn't believe it. Um, but this is actually what it means. And later realized there's another instance of a Korean king being dethroned. And there too, it was done by the orders of a queen dowager. And this is what got me down the road of, of exploring the role of the Korean Dowager in, in politics in Korea and the Korean kingdom. That's absolutely incredible. I think that's, again, I do not know tons and tons about Asian queenship. And that's just incredible that this kind of uprising happens and there's a dethroning of a king on the order of a queen. I love this for her. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and there, there are actually two stories to be told here. Um, one is the institutional one, where this queen, Dowager, Queen Dowager Inmok is her name. She refers, in a way, to, to a pre-existing precedent. So there's a legal dimension to it. But there's also an incredible story of uh, a political rivalry 
and a, a personal rivalry also between the Queen Dowager and the King. Um, so it's it's a it's a great story. I feel like we need a really good TV drama about this. It's my plan B. Yeah, go for it. I, I would watch this. All of the Asian uh, monarchies really need a little more attention in that realm. I would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> Seems like it's it's one of these where you wouldn't even have to write the script. It's already there for you. You just need to cast it. So that's actually, in a way, what I'm doing now. So um, I'm, in a way, reworking my thesis because, unfortunately, it was not the first thing I discovered. Um, so what I'm trying to do now is to to take my thesis and to focus it a bit more on this probably most exciting discovery and then hopefully publish it as, as a book by the end of the year, maybe. <laughs> so two exciting books to look forward to then, kind of end of this year and then into next year. Um, we'll have to make sure that we share with listeners uh, when they come out, let me know, and I will make sure that the powers that be cannot can share that information. And so, kind of as we think about how we we frame the work that we do, and how we as historians approach this, we've talked about these ideas of of feminist history and being feminist historians, and talked about this idea of approaching it as political history and as as this political science perspective. And so a question that listeners will hopefully by now recognize from other podcast episodes is how does your own positionality as the individuals that you are with the backgrounds that you have, how does that affect how you study queenship in, in these regions that kind of are, are not the countries of birth? and maybe not the culture that, that you've grown up with. Um, why don't we start with Alban this time? <laughs> and we'll go to Alison. Okay, yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, I think, yeah, being fortunate enough to be a member of this generation, this is actually something that I've noticed a lot. I was looking at the quite formative works of people working on political history of Korea in the 60s and 80s. And I think for them, it was just something, you know, they, they couldn't just, they just couldn't quite imagine that female actors, um, powerful women would actually have such an influence on, on the politics. So this is something that, that has impressed me a lot. I think it's important for a historian to have a lot of imagination to be able to imagine a different culture, a different reality, and to get to the point of, of being able to to have that imagination. I think a lot of cultural exposure is is very valuable. So even though I'm a textual historian, I, I always encourage getting out of the archives. So there's there's some joy to be found in being in the archives. But there's also, you'll never understand that source fully if you don't understand everything else that's happening around it to create it. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the joys of what we do is being able to kind of step out of 2023 and go, what is it, you know, outside of where we're living right now and outside of the time we're in right now? And so we get... And I focus in early modern England. And so friends who focus on the modern will go, these methods of execution are horrific. And early modern friends and I will go, no, that's that's just how they did it. And so it's it's this kind of how do you put yourself into that to kind of understand how these political situations are happening and how these a very complex relationships are working in different cultures, different eras. Yeah, I think you've said that really well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's actually it's actually part of the challenge in a way to build up that additional framework of reference, because there are many things, of course, that are happening in 
texts that I'm looking at that even for the people at the time were really quite extraordinary. And the the man who is dethroned in the story that I'm retracing, King Guanghe, he he's dethroned also for his ethical transgressions. And it's interesting that he he kills several of his brothers and relatives of the Queen Dowager. And some of these fratricides are in a way accepted as trivial as necessary, you know, that just need to be out of the way. But one of the brothers is, is just a boy, and it just becomes unacceptable. So there, there are other lines of, and other frameworks of reference that, that are really quite quite difficult, perhaps, sometimes to, to follow. And yeah, it takes immersion. Yes. Yeah. And it, it takes that. There are some things that are similar that you, know, you have to protect kids, but that it's all happening in, in such a, a different and complicated environment as well. Absolutely. And so, Alison, what about you? How do you kind of position yourself with that research? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and I, I think that it's important always for us as you know, historians or art historians to really think about that and to think about our own biases that come from our own positionality. So um, in some ways, it's not at all surprising, I think, that I study 19th and early 20th century um, visual culture and also the visual culture of Japan, partially because of where I grew up. So um, I'm originally from Chicago, and that's a very late 19th century city. Um, it's in a lot of our architecture. It's in a lot of our infrastructure. Um, so I think, you know, that was kind of baked into me from a very young age without even realizing it. And um, as a child, I also frequently went to the Art Institute with my family. My parents took me there a lot and they have a really great Japanese print collection there. So it's also not surprising and also really great French impressionist art. And the French Impressionists were looking at Japanese prints. So in some ways, I think there's all of these influences that come from my childhood and from growing up um, that I didn't, you know, even, you don't even see the environment you're in, right? You're the fish swimming in the ocean. And so you don't even see the water. Um, so some of it, I think, is very unsurprising in that way. But coming to um, monarchy is maybe um, something that is a little bit surprising. I mean, as an American, monarchy is, of course, a very foreign concept. And so it's something that's interesting to me, but I didn't grow up in one of those families where my parents are, were interested in you know, the British royal family or anything like that. I didn't grow up in that kind of culture. So I think for me, it's just kind of a, an outsider's fascination in some ways and a, a puzzle to solve, um, to, to wonder, you know, why is this system of monarchy and queenship so powerful? Why is it so enduring the world over um, and to see how this is this really still very relevant system that's, you know, one of the oldest systems, but it's still around all over the world. So I think that kind of puzzle part of it is what is um, very much an intellectual issue for me. And then also seeing, I'm fascinated with politics and um, how politics and visual culture really intersect is something that brought me to the late 19th century generally. So what better place to really see that than in images of the Empress? So um, in the Meiji period, the Meiji Emperor himself was brought to the head um, of power, kind of in a figurehead position, but also as a, a religious figure and a little bit as a political figure. So he was really um, kind of throughout all of society. And, you know, the, the emperors of Japan really have this different um, sacred presence and they are active in all sorts of different realms of society. So thinking about how politics and visual culture intersect, images of the imperial family are really important in the period between um, Meiji, Taisho, and early Showa. So really 1868 to um, 1945 and then even on. So um, in that way, I think, that the intersection of politics, visual culture, the 19th century women, it all makes sense in some really um, very interesting personal ways. It's always fascinating to me. Um, listeners, I think will know from previous episodes that I was forcing Canada into the conversation because I had to as a Canadian. 
And this kind of fascination that Canada obviously still has the monarch of Britain as, as our head of state as well. But it's always fascinating to see American scholars who are going, you know, we as a country actively overthrew the monarchy, but it's still so fascinating. <laughs> right. As you say, there's, the, there's this very big attempt to go, we don't want this, but also, could you please still let us watch what's happening? <laughs> oh, Americans love the royal family of Britain, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a, it's a pretty minor obsession <laughs> for many, many people. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think we don't really necessarily want it as our own, but, you know, you can make arguments for the Kennedy family as our royal family or any number of others. Um, but, yeah, it's a really, really interesting thing, I think, from from an American perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, kind of, as you say, monarchy is one of the oldest political systems. And so the way that this comes through so many societies in so many different eras in so many different places and queenship is out of necessity for for a lot of places it has to be part of that conversation because how else are you going to get the next generation uh in hereditary monarchies um even in non-hereditary someone has to birth the next person um, that's right and I think that's that's fascinating, just how much women play a, a role in this. We've we've kind of alluded to these differences and these similarities between what listeners and what I will confess what I might know about European queenship and how how does Asian queenship compare to that? What are some things that someone who knows about kind of Western Europe? what would they recognize? Um, so what might be the same? What might be different? Um, let's start with Alvin again, and then we can hear from Allison. Okay, I think this might be a difficult question for me, because not only you, but I'm sure many of the listeners are much better versed in European queenship than I am. Um, and the second difficulty is that even within Asia, I think there are large differences. So coming back to my favorite example of the dethronement is actually something that Korean diplomats ended up having to explain to the Chinese, which were, of course, at the time, the hegemon in the region. The Chinese emperor needed to, in a way, validate what was happening in terms of coronation, in terms of succession at the Korean court. And the Chinese were quite confused that a queen dowager would take such a decision. And the Korean diplomats had to explain that this was something that that was in coherence with, with established practice in, in Korea. Um, ultimately, it was validated. But it was a discussion. So there, there are many differences. Um, but I think I'll focus some of the similarities, perhaps, on the queen dowager. Because the role that they occupied in the Korean kingdom is one of heads of the royal household. So they didn't really get into the day-to-day -day of politics, but they had an incredibly important role for the royal family. They had decisions to take in relating to who gets to marry who, and of course, succession if there was ever a question if it wasn't settled when the king died it reverted to the queen dowager so of course then it's it's a question of of family politics but of incredible implications for the for the kingdom and i think this this family politics role is something that you can perhaps also see in other parts in other courts um thinking of of the ottomans but even I think in in the case of the British monarchy, the Queen Mother is is an authority, right? Um, so yes, in despite my very limited knowledge on European um, queenship, I think this is the, perhaps the one one parallel that I would like to draw. And otherwise, there's the the question of precedent. Um, I think also you can see that. 
the royal families are often not um, regulated so much by written laws, but there's a strong emphasis on what has happened before. There's a strong dynastic dimension, and this creates legitimacy. And this is also something that, in the case of Korean Korean dowagers, they 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 were able to build on over centuries. So actually, during the the duration of the Joseon dynasty, the Korean dowagers accumulated power through precedence. So I'm not sure how well this is traceable in other courts, but I think there are traces of it here and there. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. I think that this is completely unplanned, but this, the way that a uh, We've had in one of our our other episodes a conversation um, about the begums in India and this this reliance on precedent of you know this has already happened so it's normal for me to now take on this role and I think that's just one of these things that kind of unplanned is appearing in multiple episodes and the way that even though it's a different country, different culture, kind of different realm, there are still these similarities. But what makes it special, I think, is that it is this different cultural context. And as you quite rightly point out, we can't talk about, you know, all of Europe as being the same thing and all of Asia as being the same thing. That really the world, I mean, even now, can't be really divided along these artificial boundaries that we've decided um but i think that's that's incredibly helpful i've learned a lot from from this description of how the korean queenship and just the power of queen's dowager i love this power for them that's very exciting and so allison what about you what are some of those similarities and and differences that you notice well, I'll agree also that um, probably many listeners are more well-versed in European queenship than I am. But um, I think one thing I can start with is to say that the Japanese imperial family, perhaps famously, is the longest unbroken monarchy in the world. And um, unbroken is a little tricky of a, a term, and I don't want to go too far into defining lineage here. But um, when we talk about Japan and the imperial family, we're talking about the term tenno which is usually translated as emperor, but it's a non-gendered term in Japanese. So it's not gendered as female or male. Um, Pre-modern period, and by modern, I mean 1868, there were um, eight women who were tenno, so eight female emperors um, who ruled. And, you know, there's some really interesting stories about some of them. Um, but this idea of the empress when we're talking about queenship, it's empress for, for Japan. Um, the empress or the Kogo as a, a singular figure is really a modern invention um, in post-1868. So um, this idea of an empress who is the singular figure who was part of a nuclear family along with the emperor is something that was a late 19th century idea. Um, and even the term tenoke or the imperial family is something that was not really widespread in use until the 20th century. Because um, there just wasn't this idea that the emperor had a family per se in the way that we think of it today in 2023. Um, so those are some differences. And I think a lot of people will be aware that um, today the imperial family in Japan does have succession issues and there's succession crises. Um, and a lot of that is because of really modern and contemporary laws. So um, in 1889, there were imperial laws that were passed that said that women could no longer be tenno. So, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with how recent that law is and how much of a modern innovation it is to say that women cannot be the emperor in Japan. Um, there's a lot of 
public surveys that are done today and polling that says that many people in Japan would welcome another woman Tenno or a woman emperor, um, but that's a really long legal process and there's a lot of powers at be that stand in the way of that actually happening. Um, but even prior to the, the passage of that law in 1889, there were discussions amongst um, Japanese legal authorities and the powers that be at that time that women may be considered to be Tenno. And part of the reason that they weren't is because women didn't have suffrage in the late 19th century. So women didn't have the right to vote and the political leaders of the day felt, well, it's probably not appropriate to put a woman as Tenno if women can't vote. And then it's only men voting. We have a woman who's at the height of um, governance and society. And so that tension was resolved by saying, okay, no women emperors. Um, historically also, as there's part of this male lineage and as the imperial line passes through the male blood, if we will, um, there was one primary family called the Fujiwara clan that married in and basically produced, they were the women who produced the next emperors. So they were the ones that gave birth to um, the next emperor. And so there's this interesting kind of lineage and um, grouping within there. So in the post-war years after 1945, um, we do have this kind of shrinking of the imperial family and of the nobility that surrounded them. And that's what really leads to the succession issues today. There's just not as many people in the imperial family. And so when you have, um, for example, the current emperor has one child and it's a, it's a daughter. So um, that becomes a problem of succession. But luckily, um, the current emperor does have a brother who has a son. So he can pass the imperial succession to his younger brother who will then pass it to his son. Before that son was born, there were a lot more discussions about potential female emperors. But um, once the boy came along, you know, things changed. So, um, yeah, it's always this kind of fluctuation. And I think that um, a lot of people don't really understand that the rules are always changing and people tend to think of tradition um, as something that's unbroken or never changes. But the reality is that there's constantly different circumstances um, that do force change within these different structures. And I think so many listeners might think, you know, oh, it, it must be that only recently women have been able to have this power. And actually, it's that's how it's always been. And now it's the anomaly that women can't officially hold this position anymore, um, which I think is just the irony that they bring this in and then all of a sudden <laughs> everyone starts having girls. <laughs> right. And there's, yeah. there's a, a lack of boys to inherit. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And and just, I think it's it's also interesting to see how these are questions that span across countries, across realms, across centuries, that this need for an heir and how do we define kind of male heirs, female heirs, how do we de define is a monarch, is a, an emperor, how do we define that? Is that gendered male? Is that gendered female? And I think often, especially in Western European queenship, we have this, well, it's a king or a queen. And this this concept of, no, they just, they just are. That is just <laughs> the monarch. That is just the emperor. Isn't a thing that that Western Europe has. I mean, that's something that's that's really interesting here about kind of especially Japan. I think we've we've skirted around this a lot, but getting into more of those details, I'm Alvin, can you give us a, a overview of the era that you're looking at? Kind of when is it? Who's in power? What's happening? Um, kind of some of those those big points that you might put into the who's who and the what's happening. Um yes, of course. So the the era that I've researched is the early 17th century. And I've chosen this era because it is really a transformative period in East Asia. So in the 1590s, you have this massive invasion from Japan 
into Korea actually aiming at China. Um, and it's it's something that, that Western Europeans sometimes underestimate, but this is probably at the time the most modern army in the world using guns because the Japanese had learned this technique from the Portuguese and manufactured them at that point almost in an industrial scale. So Korea is in a way recovering from this. Japan, after the invasions fail, is sort of reshuffling, this short relapse into civil war. And then you have the establishment of the Tokugawa period, which gives another another period of, of stability for, for over 200 years. And on the other side, you have China. The Chinese helped the Koreans actually repel this invasion. And at the time, the Ming dynasty of China is just the absolute pinnacle of splendor. It's, it's the greatest power in the region, probably globally. But in the decades after this invasion, they slowly slip. There's domestic unrest. And then there's a new power base building up in Manchuria, right on the Korean and Chinese borders. And within 50 years from the invasion, the Japanese launched on Korea. It's now the Manchurians that are invading. Well, actually, by after these 50 years, the invasion is completed. The Manchurians have subdued Korea, reduced it to a vassal state, and they have conquered China and established the last Chinese, if you will, empire, which would last until the early 20th century. So this is why this is such a crucial period. An interesting thing about Korea is that it actually survives. The dynasty survives the Japanese invasion, even though for a moment, it doesn't look like it. The Korean king is contemplating fleeing into China. There's a big debate whether that would mean surrendering the country. Um, twice they get invaded by the Manchurians. In the end, they are forced to accept Manchurian uh, superiority. But they maintain a, a national identity and they retain a national state. Anyway, um, so it's, it's a crucial period for Korea. And for me, it was also particularly interesting, of course, because if you have so much stress on the kingdom, on the institution, you often see much better where the institution's boundaries are, where the authority um, really ends. And this is something that uh, I also realized, by the way, observing Brexit being in the UK during Brexit, suddenly everybody knows who the Speaker of the Parliament is and what he, what the role of the Speaker is, what he can do. So that was, in a way, my my approach. Um, seeing the institutions under stress uh, and then learning about what they can do. I think, as as you say, it's, it's incredibly fascinating seeing these political workings and kind of getting to look behind that curtain into how it all works. And so obviously in a series about the, the queens, these royal women, what is their role in, in this political complexity? Um, and what, what can their role tell us about kind of queenship more generally um, in, in the Korean kingdom? So this is actually a difficult question. The tricky thing about researching Korean queens is that for the most part they don't feature very heavily in the annals. This is not necessarily because of any uh, inherent bias against them, but it's it's a result of a different policy. So the annals were compiled by historians, which did an absolutely amazing job. Um, they were always at court. They noted down everything that happened. It's it's really a diary. Day by day, you can tell what was said, by whom, at which meeting. It's, it's fantastic. Um, these were compiled at the death of each king, so you have like a, um, a book for each, for each reign. Now, these, these historiographers were present at all of the meetings for the king, usually. They got quite upset if, if their business was interfered with, 
and uh, it would reflect. Um, now, for queens, they were housed in the restricted parts of the palace. So the male historiographers would not have access to them. So usually it takes an extraordinary circumstance for them to interact with the bureaucrats, officials, attendants at court, for them to be able to record what the Queen Dowager said. Um, so there is a strong bias to, to think that they only interfered with the very important questions of the dynasty, because that's when they would feature heavily. Um, beyond that, their role, of course, remained very important ritually. As heads of the royal household, they would um, be present and heading family councils. But this also was something that was restricted. So um, there again, uh, doesn't, it doesn't feature too heavily. Um, at some point, when the Maturians are invading Korea and the people are suffering hardships, then you also have some some small interventions by the Queen Dowager saying that she will not have any luxurious food while her people are starving and she's being praised by the court as really fulfilling the role of the mother of the country. Um, how far that actually traveled across the walls of the palace, I have a hard time saying, but she was definitely strong for morale um, at the center of, of the seat of power. So that is perhaps not a very complete answer, but maybe part of the question uh, I got to answer. I think that, that brings up such uh, an interesting and I think really important point to note is Obviously, we all come with our different perspectives. And in, in any court, there are places where some people can't go, whether that's, you know, going into the monarch's bedchamber, into that kind of most private area, or going into where the royal women are. And it's, as you say, it's not that they're not important. It's just that the people who are traditionally seen as the history writers can't get to that point. And so we have to live with those consequences in 2023. Um, but it's, I think it's it's really special. Um, not that I'm telling you how special your work is, but <laughs> it's it's really special that you're getting to kind of pull these women out of that story and saying, you know, they are there. And when they aren't there, it's not because they aren't doing anything. It's because they're just not being seen as doing something, which is is very different than inactivity. So I'm very much looking forward to reading your research that is hopefully coming out soon um, and to hearing even more about these incredible women. And so, Allison, that brings us to Japan during the Meiji period. So what, what is happening in this era? Can you give us a, a brief overview of Japan, the monarchy, what that's looking like. Yeah, so the Meiji period is relatively short. Um, 1868 to 1912 is not that long, but a lot of things change and a lot of things happen. So um, it's it's a little tricky to give a brief overview, but um, basically um, kind of the, the short narrative that I can say is that um, Japan really was, Japan was mostly closed to the outside world in the 200 plus years before the Meiji emperor takes the throne. And there were people that were trading in um, primarily um, in the south, um, but there were traders from Korea and from China and also from um, Europe. So it wasn't completely closed off, but Japan opens up to the outside world um, after 18, in the 18th. 50s. And um, so we have a, a pretty different society. And I think that um, a lot of the changes that we see in Meiji Japan were fairly ad hoc changes. Um, there wasn't any sort of overarching um, plan that was put into 
place that just kind of takes us through the whole of the Meiji period, things are constantly changing. And that's what makes Meiji a little bit difficult to categorize. Um, but a lot of the change was strategic, right? So it was a matter of um, the Meiji government saw that, um, for example, I'm thinking about this a lot being in the UK right now, but also thinking about images of industry. Um, they saw that Britain was the best place for trains. So they um, bought trains from here, they brought engineers over, um, and they were really interacting with the UK, well, then England on um, ideas of trains and train technology. But then they also saw, for example, that um, certain other countries like France was really good at textile manufacture, or they saw that Italy was really good at art production. And so they were taking specifics from each of these countries, both sending Japanese people overseas, but also having um, the Oyatoi Kaikokujin or these foreign workers who they would hire and bring into Japan. So there's an interest in creating lots of different systems um, throughout society. And there are quick changes, things like electricity, trains, global trade, right? Um, photography, but those things are also fairly quick to change all over the world. So um, we also have to look at the constants, right? Um, there's lots of things that stay the same and there's lots of things that don't change at all. Um, the Meiji period is the start of Japan's imperial era. For example, colonialism starts and that's where, you know, of course there's a tie between Japan and Korea. Um, Japan also takes um, Hokkaido in the north, Okinawa in the south, um, and eventually goes on to win um, the Russo and Sino-Japanese wars, um, really important global events. So Japan, you know, at the start of the Meiji period is not a really major global player, but by the end, it, it absolutely is. So those changes happen um, in a, a lot of different ways. Um, but what really interests me is the story of how visual culture and how art is so central to this change. Japan starts to become a major um, force at the global fairs. So they put out these huge exhibitions and I can return once again to my hometown, um, the World's Fair of 1893 where um, in Chicago, where Japan has a huge presence and they make a whole fake island and build massive um, reconstructions of Buddhist temples and then have this giant art exhibition. Um, they do the same all over the world um, where there's different international fairs. Um, also, textile manufacture was a big way that Japan brought um, foreign currency in, and they were able to then develop their own um, systems inside. So um, it's, a, it's a period that's really full, and there's a lot to talk about. Um, and I think there's, you know, if you look at the start of what it looks like visually in 1868 and what it looks like in 1912, um, things are, are really different, but if you look at it year by year, you see those gradual changes and you see where there's um, continuity throughout. And I think it's it's so significant to look at, obviously we see with hindsight where it ends up and we, we see kind of, well, of course this happens and then this happens and then this happens. But at the time it's it wouldn't be this, massive shift it's this gradual you know you don't even realize it's happening until you look back and go do you remember when <laughs> right it becomes so yeah. different mm -hmm. and so kind of similar question here obviously there's there's a lot happening in japan and a lot of of this relationship not only in japan but the of japan with others and so how does, especially the, the Meiji Empress, but how do Japanese royal women um, and other empresses kind of fit into this picture? And what can they tell us about kind of queenship or, or empressship, maybe? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Um, I agree. <laughs> that's maybe the hardest one, but um, here we are at the end. Um, so Shoken, who was the Meiji Empress, and then Heimei, who is the Taisho Empress, one thing that's really difficult in studying them is that they're difficult figures to know. So um, the Japanese imperial family is um, man managed, I guess, by the Imperial Household Agency, which was um, formerly the Imperial Household Ministry. Um, and this is a notoriously opaque 
um, agency. So you, you know, they do have archives um, and you can access some things in the archives, but um, it is really difficult because the the personal lives of these two women are are very much controlled even to this day. So um, that's why one thing that I think is really interesting about these two women is that we can approach them through visual culture. And we can't really do that for the um, imperial women who lived in the pre-modern period um, because the monarchy was newly public in the Meiji period. And by newly public, I mean, you know, in, in Europe, you have these royal tours, you have all the sculpture, like I was talking about. These are really new images. And so because you have this new development of visual culture, um, it's really possible to know what the public thought of them. So I think that's what's really interesting about um, Meiji and um, the Meiji and Taisho periods and Shoken and Teime is that uh, we know that they were really popular figures. We know that people liked them. The woodblock prints and the photographs that I examine um, in studying them are things that people would have purchased. So these are market products, not something that was um, handed out or anything like that. These are free market objects that people were interested in. So we know a little bit about their popularity through that. Um, and we also know that they were a fairly approachable side of the imperial family and that they were really celebrity figures in many ways. So the emperors have this connection to the sacred and to this idea of this un unbroken lineage and the idea of connecting all the way back to the sun goddess Amaterasu in um, kind of lore and folklore. But for the empresses, they don't have this um, weight or baggage of having this kind of sacred connection. Um, of course, they are the mothers of the next emperor, but you know, that's not envisioned in the same way. So as a result, in some ways, the women of the imperial family can get away with a little bit more in the public realm in that um, they can be envisioned in different ways. But also it does mean that they're criticized in the public realm as well. So it's a, a bit of a two-sided coin there in that um, they're this approachable celebrity side that is really important for the imperial family in marketing themselves, especially when you get into the 20th century, um, the world over monarchies start to fall and um, there's a real danger there in losing monarchy. So they are this really important, um, relatable public part, but at the same time, um, it does mean that in the public realm, they can receive criticism like has happened in the last few years with Princess Mako and her um, marriage as she left and now lives in New York City. So um, there's there's a little bit of both aspects there. Um, so I think that in studying them, we really do see how the imperial family was important to people's concepts of what it meant to be Japanese, to concepts of nationality, and eventually to also concepts of colonial um, power. The Korean nobility in the modern period is brought into the Japanese, um, nobility and they're made a part of the Japanese imperial family when Korea was colonized. So that's a, a real power flex, of course. And um, a similar thing was done with um, the Okinawan um, royal family as well. They were brought into this structure. So um, I think that we can learn a lot about the social and also political side of um, Japan in the modern era by studying these women. And as you say, they're, they're this uh, uh, approachable, I guess is the word, this approachable <laughs> way in that they they have all of the, so the glory and the fame of being associated with the emperor, but none of the, the, the scariness of this sacred being. Um, right. So they have all the glory and none of that responsibility in, in that <laughs> sacred sense. Um, yeah. I think that's it's interesting to see how in in both cases here that women and royal women really are the way into this story and they tell us so so much about both of these eras both of these realms that they can show us kind of the the cultural norms they can show us how that culture works they can show us how power works they can show us as Alvin was saying, these these boundaries of power, of 
What can they do? What can't they do? How do they exert that power? And what power do they have? I know that I have learned a lot from our conversation and I hope listeners have as well. I want to say thank you to both of you for an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I hopefully am speaking on behalf of listeners as well. I cannot wait to read when your books come out. I think this is this has gotten me excited again about queenship and about queenship in uh, a new to me part of the world. Um, so thank you both so much for your expertise and for just a wonderfully friendly, insightful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So we will say goodbye to our listeners for now, and we'll look forward to seeing you all back to talk in a little bit about queenship and looking more at this idea of global queenship. So we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.